I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just by way of review, how many know that God sent His Spirit? Sent His Spirit to us. How many know why He sent His Spirit to us? Cindy, why did He send His Spirit to us? Permission. Now we can point to a number of of, of Possibilities, reasons, rationale, and so forth for His Spirit. But really, bottom line, when you when you uh, look at the Scriptures, uh, it's very, very difficult to come away from them, even just a cursory study, not with with the conclusion that that uh, He's created us for a reason. He's caused us to be born again for a very specific reason: His glory and and the uh, the testimony of of, uh, of Christ. He's called us to be his witnesses. He sent his spirit to us, not so much that we be comfortable, but that we be missionaries. We will not, we cannot share the gospel, tell other people, be viable witnesses unless it is by his spirit. We just That's just the reality. We are, in our own humanness, so alienated from God. And, and I think this is something that, sometimes escapes our understanding. Uh, we, we like to think of God as being love and kind and gracious and, and, and whatnot, but I don't know that we always really understand how alienated from God we are uh, in our own humanness. And we have to be radically, miraculously changed and uh, if we are to, one, know Him, and two, uh, fulfill the calling uh, that He has for us in our life. And uh, so, so God sent His Spirit, basically, that we could be His witnesses. What a privilege. What a privilege. Uh, just think of somebody in your life who is uh, famous or um, uh, just renowned, if you will, and uh, you had the privilege of knowing that person, and you got to tell other people about that person, that you knew them, and uh, what a blessing they were uh, in your life and so forth. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome? Well, how much more so God? So he sent his spirit that we be his witnesses. But before we can be his witnesses, we have to be saved. And before we can be saved, we have to come to a conscious understanding and knowledge of our problem. What's our problem? Sin. That's a very real issue. And again, it's not something that people necessarily want to talk about, deal with today in our culture. Uh, it, it's just not a favorite subject, sin. Um, but the Holy Spirit comes, and before we can be saved, we have to be convicted of our sin. So we saw last time that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. Once having convicted us of our sin, it's necessary that we repent. But I want to suggest to you that we will not repent in and of our own strength and ability. It's the Holy Spirit has to grant us the gift of repentance. And even when he grants us the gift of repentance, we're still not going to believe because we're still weak. So he has to also then give us the gift of faith so that we can what? Believe. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that it's all of God. 
The very fact that I can repent, the very fact that I, that I can see my sin for what it is and how alienated I am from God, the very fact that I can experience godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to life, that's all of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be uh, under the illusion that any of this is of our own doing. It seems like it from our perspective, but the reality is, is God is at work in our life doing this great, great work of transformation. So once we believe, and we can only believe because he's given us the faith to believe, once we believe, now the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. He takes up residence in our bodies. And he does so because he wants to use our bodies as his his temple. These bodies, individually as Christians and Corporately, the body of Christ, in, in both senses, uh, we have the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in the church corporately. The Holy Spirit resides in us individually as believers. I want to call your attention to these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now, the context, again, the Corinthians were notable for a lot of difficulties. And he reminds them in this passage that he says, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? In other words, he's speaking to the corporate body now. You yourselves, it's plural, the pronouns are plural there in the Greek text. And there are problems in the church. There are divisions in the church. The church is being torn apart. And Paul's coming to remind them, you are the temple of God's Spirit. You ought not to be torn apart. He goes on and says in the next verse, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So you want to be very, very careful about divisions and, 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 and being a source of problems in the church because the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, that, that pronoun you, again, is in the plural. So he's speaking to the congregation, to the life of the church. Turn over to chapter 6. And again, in chapter 6, this is a context of uh, immorality and uh, things that ought not to be done uh, in the life of a Christian. You read the whole chapter as, as uh, background, but then I want to call your attention to verse 19. In verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So now individually, not only corporately, but now individually, he's telling these Corinthians that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't sin against your body. And that's what they were doing. Many of them were involved in that. He says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Understand what is true about you? Understand what God has done. Your body is a temple. He says you were bought with. He says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your what? With your body. He, he lives in us. And over in Second Corinthians chapter six and verse sixteen, he again rehearses that same theme, and he says, "For we are the temple of the living God." So a number of times, and Peter rehearses the same thing, they wear stones built into a living temple and so forth. So there's a number of passages that speak directly to this issue. The bottom line is, the Holy Spirit is living in us, 
individually, corporately, we are the temple of God's Spirit. Now, the question it becomes, once he lives in me, once he comes and takes up residence in me, what is he there for? What is he going to do? Very, very important. We're going to talk about the first thing he does this morning. If you were adopted, and we have a number of families that have adopted children in our church, so this is a, a good example, I think. If you were adopted, and you came from a very difficult background where you were rejected, 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 passed around, never felt like you belonged. Uh, and so now some family comes along and adopts you, takes you into their family. What's the first thing that you would want to know? That you're wanted. That you belong. You would want assurance. Would you not? Let me suggest to you the first thing the Holy Spirit does when he takes up residence in us, is he assures us. To whatever degree you and I may have felt alienated from God, we're not worthy. How could God possibly love me? Right? We, we, we're always working hard to prove ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And, and if the truth be known, any one of us this morning, based on our own efforts, we're not good enough. I mean, you can be a Christian for how many years, Ronnie? 22 years. A Christian for 22 years. If it's just up to you, would you feel good enough to be, to be accepted by God? No, of course not. Because we know the things in us that we know would disqualify us, right? And so the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he assures us. This is so, so important. Again, the first thing that you and I need when we pass from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God's power, would seem to be simply assurance. I belong. I belong. We need to know that we belong to this new family. We need to be assured that we belong. We need to be assured that we are accepted in Christ. That goes to the deepest core of our being. God accepts me in Christ. I am part of His family. It's not an intellectual exercise. There's a subjective, palpable reality to that that ought to be uh, in evidence in our life, our experience. You know when people say, I love you, right? We say, we just throw those words, I love you, love you. But then sometimes you walk away and say, do you really love me? Does that person really love me? And you know, you know subjectively when someone really does love you. Isn't that true? You just know it. And so we need to know this. We need to know that we're in Christ. We're accepted. Acceptable in Christ. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. And, beloved, it is the Holy Spirit who is to assure us of this. In 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to look at a number of passages in 1 John. You might want to turn to 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, John writes this, And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Holy Spirit He gave us. People say, well, how do you, how do you know? I just know. Well, are you, do you just make assumptions? No, I just know. 
Down deep inside of me, I know that I am his. I know that I'm loved. I know that I'm accepted. I know that I am a member of God's family. Now, the enemy's going to come, and he's going to try to deceive me. He's going to try to lie to me. He's going to try to say, wow, look at you. How can you possibly say that you are... Because I, and I, I just keep coming back. It's like the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing me back. Doubt, doubt is there to try to try to dis, dissuade me, but you know what? The Holy Spirit keeps bringing me back. He keeps me. He keeps me. In First John chapter four, verse thirteen, we know that we live in Him and He in us. How do we know that? Because He has given us of His Spirit. This is a spiritual reality that you and I cannot draw and label all the parts. We want to systematize everything. We want to, we want to have it all down and figure it out. You can't figure it all out. This is a, this is a dynamic. My wife says, I love you. I know she loves me. Now, she's not always happy with me. But I know that she loves me. There, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind. I don't ever, ever think she doesn't love me. Never. That thought never occurs to me. And by the same token, the Holy Spirit in me has, has absolutely confirmed to me, assured me, witnesses to my spirit that God loves me. I don't care if no one else loves me. He loves me. Look at, look at uh, uh, chapter 5 of 1 John. It's, it's in, there's a couple of verses, verses 7 and 8. And, and in these verses, John, John tells us there are actually three grounds for Christian assurance. The first is the Holy Spirit. And the second two, interestingly, just look at these verses with me. Oh, I better turn there too. He says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now, what does he mean? The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Well, we already talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked to you a little bit about the water and the blood. The context of John's writing is he's writing, is, he's writing in a time where there were uh, teachings called Gnostic, Gnostic heresies. They were uh, false teachings that were plaguing the early church, and John is writing to counter one of those heresies. And, and the heresy, particular heresy he was dealing with, um, was about Jesus, that Jesus was not the Christ, that there was kind of a dichotomy. There was a heavenly Christ, and there was a human Jesus. And that the two came together at Jesus' baptism. But prior to his, his death on the cross, prior to his passion, the heavenly Christ left. Now you can imagine what this would do to your faith. If you, if you think through the logic of that position. Gnosticism taught, uh, basically, that, uh, that matter was evil. And therefore, God could have nothing to do with matter. And certainly, God would not die on a cross. Okay, he wouldn't suffer death, which is absolutely contrary to what the Bible clearly teaches us, that God did take our sins upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, the, the union between the heavenly Christ and the human Jesus 
was only temporary. That's what the Gnostics taught. It was temporary. Now, if that was true, which it is not true, if that were true, there there are a number of implications uh, for our faith. One is there would simply be no Christian good news to preach. Why would be why would there be no Christian good news to preach? Do you think? Who died on the cross? No. Who died on the cross, according to the Gnostics? The man Jesus. The man Jesus. It wasn't Jesus the Christ. The Christ left. So it was just simply a man. A good man. Is there good news in that? No, that's just a, that's just a, that's just a poor tragedy. Poor guy. Died for nothing. He's just up there on the cross. He can't do anything for me. He's just a man. He's not the infinite, perfect God-man. So, if that were true, what they were teaching, John says, in effect, that the, uh, there, there's no Christian good news to preach at all. He says also, <coughs> there's literally no incarnation of the Son of God. In other words, the second person of Trinity does not come become human. Jesus has a dual nature. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. If this heresy were true, that would not be the case. Thirdly, there would be no unity between him and us. We have no hope, in effect. And fourthly, there would be simply no redemptive death on that cross. So you can understand how it's imperative it is for John to combat that heresy if, in fact, uh, the gospel is to go forward and people are to have life and have hope. So John very simply says that Jesus, the Christ, the one and the same person, is the one, now notice this, he is the one who has come through the water of his baptism He is the one who has come through the blood of his cross. One and the same person. Jesus the Christ. No separation. And he is the one who is mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. The coming through water, the coming through the cross, and the gift of the Holy Spirit... John says, were all historical events. They actually did happen. And yet, they are more than that. The effect of those events didn't just end when they ended. They are continuing factors in the life of the church. They're continuing factors in the life of the church through the experience we have of the Spirit. You can experience the Holy Spirit in your life. And there are continuing factors through, if I can use this word, the sacraments, if you will, of water, which would be, what's a sacrament of water? Baptism. And also the sacrament of the blood. What sacrament would that be? Communion. Or you could call it the Eucharist, if you will, as some are wont to do. Baptism. Think about this with me. Baptism is a mark 
of belonging. When you are baptized, the words that are pronounced when, when another baptizes you, I baptize you into the name of the what? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized into the name of, you're baptized into the possession of. You belong now. That's what Paul says earlier. You, you, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You, you don't have the right over your own life to do as you please. And so baptism is, is a mark of belonging. It is a basis of assurance. It is the testimony to me, I belong. Does that make sense? When I undergo my baptism, I'm initiated, I'm in, I'm part of, I belong. This is the basis of assurance which the Holy Spirit brings home to our hearts. This is what we ought to experience. When you go down under that water and you come up under that water, the testimony is, I belong. I belong. I've come through the water of baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save We're saved by God, by His grace, through faith. Amen? But baptism is the important testimony that I belong. Many of you have heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one of the great reformers of the church. Uh, After the church had had gone off in in the wrong direction in terms of uh, salvation, you could buy salvation, you could buy yourself out of purgatory and indulgences and the whole thing. Just horrible, horrible things in the church. And uh, Luther and a number of others, uh, John Zwindley, Calvin, and others, uh, were responsible for reforming the church, more particularly with its understanding and emphasis on soteriology or uh, the, the doctrine of salvation. How is one saved? And they, they clarified it for the church uh, in, in, in terms of its salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so Martin Luther was one of the great reformers. And it is said of Luther, if you read any of his biographies or uh, people that write about him, that uh, when he was very often tempted to despair. And, and more particularly, he was tempted to despair about his spiritual state. Remember, he was a monk an Augustinian monk, and, and given to meditation and writing and thinking. And, and, you know, sometimes we think too much. We become too introspective. God didn't mean for us to be all that introspective because it can really mess you up. But he was often tempted to despair of his spiritual state. And at those points, what would help him, uh, he would recall the joy of his baptism. His baptism meant much to him, and it gave him great joy. And he would carry himself back and rehearse that great event. Uh, The joy, because his spiritual status with God, did not rest on his own faith, a subjective faith, though he valued that greatly. But when in the despair of doubt, he had no confidence, if you will, in simply a subjective attitude of faith. It wasn't strong enough for him. He needed to go back to an event. He needed to go back to some point of demarcation. He said, yes. And it brought him great joy because it reminded him, brought him back into proper perspective. Does that make sense? See, it was his baptism. 
administered by, to him by, by others that sealed him physically, sealed upon him physically the objectiveness of what Christ had done for him on that cross. It just, now all of a sudden, he can objectify the whole thing. Okay, this is what happened. This is who I am. This is where I am. Rather than he's wallowing in some subjective attitude and trying to get a hold of something solid. And you know when you're in despair, that is really hard to do, isn't it? People say, come on, just believe. (laughs) I'm trying. And Luther would carry himself back to his baptism. And that indeed, for him, was the ground of assurance that would give him one more, again, stability. It was... uh, if I can use this phrase, the sacrament of justification by grace. That's what, that's what it was. His, his baptism to him was a sacrament of justification by grace. The physical, palpable reminder that God acted for him without his help and prior to his response. It was all God. All God. And like baptism, communion too. Communion, too, is one of the ways in which the Spirit gives us assurance. How does he do that? In John's Gospel, in chapter 6, it's right after uh, Jesus has fed the multitudes. And so he's got all these people following him. And John records that he turns to the crowds who are following him. He says, why are you following me? Because I fed you. And then he says something very, very shocking to them. What does he say? Anybody remember? I mean, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats here. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Now, of course, all these people following were Jews. This was abhorrent. It would be abhorrent to us, right? But more so, a Jew, a righteous, religious, law-keeping Jew, it was absolutely prohibited to eat flesh, human flesh, and certainly drink blood. And yet here's the very thing that Jesus says to them. They have no category for that. Now, was he literally meaning for them to eat his flesh and drink his blood? No, he's speaking figuratively, wasn't he? So I think, I think John strongly implies, because we're going to look at a couple of verses, the Spirit is brought into relation as you shall see in a moment, closely into relation with the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. And so being confident of dwelling in Christ, being fed by him and raised up by him on the last day. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, you got to feed on me. you got to trust in me. you gotta, you gotta, you got to be with me. you got to have me in you. And it's a spiritual dynamic. It's brought about by the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 6, verse 54. He says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now look at verse 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now look at verse 63. The Spirit gives life. Now, he said you'll have life if you what? 
Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You'll have life, right? But now he says, the Spirit gives life. What does he say next? The flesh counts for nothing. He says, I'm not talking about literally eating my flesh. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. He says, these words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Again, he brings the Holy Spirit into close relation with these words. The implication is it's the Spirit, by his own testimony, who brings this life. You have eternal life. You're in me only by the Spirit. You must feed on me spiritually. He says the same thing, different words, in, in the third chapter of John's Gospel. Remember with his interview with Nicodemus? And he talks to Nicodemus about the, what, the second, second birth. He must be born again. Nicodemus is thinking only in terms of what? A literal, physical second birth. So he questions Jesus. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? You know, he's thinking physical birth. And Jesus is saying, Nick, you don't got it. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. I'm talking about a second birth, a rebirth, a new birth, but it is a birth by the spirit. So the very same thing he, he tells Nicodemus, he's telling all these people who are following him. Now, he uses literal language, but he doesn't. they have to understand it only from a spiritual perspective. Now, baptism and communion are very, very important. They are, as John says in his epistle, they are uh, grounds of assurance, grounds of testimony. Now, I know, just like you do, that baptism and communion can be completely empty, couldn't they? That could really mean nothing. We just go through the motions. Be baptized, okay, it's a great event, we all celebrate, sing, and you know, clap, and all that. And you, a person could be absolutely clueless about what's going on, really. And communion is the same thing. We can take communion, we pass the elements, and uh, as most of you are aware, that we have congregational communion the first weekend of every month. And then on uh, every other every other week, we have communion available in in both sides of the of the sanctuary here. So you're you're very welcome to come and take the elements during worship when you bring your offering, uh, except during this time, right? And so you can take communion. You're always welcome to have communion before after service. Communion is always available. But it can be an empty just an empty ceremony, empty ritual for some. Kind of like the marriage ceremony. People go, people can be married and they're all excited and they get caught up in the event and all the trappings of the event, but they never really get a hold of the, of the meaning of the ceremony. It, it becomes devoid of meaning to them. It is, it is right. It is necessary for us to look back, to look back on our wedding day as assurance. Think about this. As assurance that we really are married. Now, I know I'm married. I know I'm married. 
But to understand and grasp the reality of what marriage is, it's important for me sometimes when I lose perspective to go back to that day. What did I say? I invite couples all the time. When you got married, did you say anything like, right? Yes. Did you mean it? Yes. No, you didn't. You didn't even know what you were saying. Isn't that true? You said some words. But now in crunch time, you need to go back and rehearse those things and be assured. And just as we do that with marriage, we go back to our baptism. We go back to the, to the communion table, if I can say that. It is right and necessary for, for me to go back to my baptism as a mark given me by the Holy Spirit that I am really born again in Christ, and to communion as a pledge that I do participate, I do partake of his life. I do feed on him. I need him. And indeed, I shall in the last day share in his resurrection. We come to the communion table, we think, yes. I take that little piece of matzah, that little cup of juice, Reminds me that I need to feed on him every single day. If there's ever any doubt in my mind that I'm a really believer, I go back to my baptism and I understand what that was all about. It was a mark, it was a beginning for me. The Holy Spirit introduced me into the body of Christ. Does that make sense to you? And so the Spirit, baptism, communion, testimonies, assurances. But it's not only those that give me assurance. The Holy Spirit means for me to know where I stand. He doesn't mean for me to be in any doubt whatsoever. Again, 1 John 3.24, this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Holy Spirit He gave us. 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may wonder about it, you may know. The Holy Spirit points out various signs which give us confidence, which give us assurance of our status with God. He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt we belong to Him. Is that a good thing? I think so, absolutely. I want to point out five things in in, in the book of 1 John. The first, five signs of life, if you will. Change behavior. Change behavior. As Christians, we should expect the indwelling Holy Spirit to make a difference. I just think about what I just said. We should expect the indwelling Holy Spirit to make a what? Make a difference. If it's, if, if, if he, if we, if we need him to convict us, if we need him to grant us repentance, if we need him to, uh, uh, grant us faith to believe, and then he comes and dwells in us, then it must follow that he's going to continue to make a difference in our life. If there is no difference, then there is good reason to suppose that I'm probably not possessed of the Holy Spirit. 
I've probably not received him. I'm not a Christian. And this is a dilemma for lots of people. They, you know, uh, Pastor, my, my, my brother, you know, he's, he, he made a profession of faith, but I don't see any change in his life. Is he a Christian? No. Well, how could he say he believed and not change? Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit in him. The Holy Spirit makes changes in our life. The first thing, we're, we're born again. We're not the same people we were. We're new creation. Whereas before I had a bent away from God in my life, and I love the darkness, <laughs> now, as a new creation, I have a bent towards God in my life, and I love the light. Now, is that based on my own efforts? No, that's based on what, what the Spirit of God has wrought in me. So a believer, according to John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, notice this, please. Then the believer begins to do two things. The first thing is he begins to obey God's word. All you have to do is look into your own experience. When you became a believer, something changed. And now you begin to obey God's word. Whereas before you would not, and indeed you could not. Secondly, you begin to walk as Jesus did. That's why it's so important to read the Gospels. You want to know how he walked. Oh, this is how Jesus walks. And now you start walking after him. You start following him. This is what, what it means to, to walk after the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians. To walk in the Spirit. That, those, those phrases. It means simply to walk as Jesus walked. How are you going to know? Well, I've got to read his book. Find out how he walked. And then you find that you, that you make those attempts to walk, and you can actually do it. You can actually do it. A mark of tremendous change. In chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 John, John writes this. He says, You will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in you. You cannot go on sinning because you have been born of God. Now, what does he mean? Is he, is he preaching sinless perfectionism there? No. He's just simply saying, if you possess the Holy Spirit, He's made a terrific difference in your life. He's going to continue to make that difference. You cannot go on living your life now as you did before you became a Christian. Will a Christian sin? Yeah. Why? Because we're still imperfect. We're not totally perfected. But will a Christian go on sinning as he did before he became a Christian? No. Paul answers that in Romans chapter 6, doesn't he? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He says, no. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's impossibility. If you're truly born again, you cannot live your life like you lived it before. You'll be tempted. You may even try. But it's not going to be a reality to you. Therein is assurance. Would you agree with me? A sense of, wow, I really am different. My appetites have changed. My desires have changed. John is saying very simply that our new birth, our divine sonship, mediated by the Spirit, must show itself in changed behavior. If it's not there, then you have cause to be concerned. We cannot go on untouched in the old self-centered ways 
if the Holy Spirit has made his residence in us. You just can't go on in the same way. The second base of assurance that the Holy Spirit points us to is fellowship. In chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 13 through 15, he writes this. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. So in other words, again, the, the obvious implication is that there, there's going to be a change. You can't hate your brother anymore. You've got to be marked by love. But with respect to fellowship, another mark of belonging, another assurance, if you will, is the willingness to face the opposition of the world. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It's like, why do they hate me? Jesus said, well, they're going to hate you because they hate me. If I'm in you, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised by this. So there's a willingness to face the opposition of the world and a willingness to become involved in the loving fellowship of the family of Christ. This is where every Christian, moved by the Holy Spirit, must face that reality. Okay, I'm going to be involved in the, in the body of Christ. Thirdly, there's a complex of events. Love, joy, and power. These are all mediated again to us by the Holy Spirit. Love, we just talked a little bit about love. Joy, power. The Holy Spirit mediates to us in, in, John says in, in, in chapter 4 of his letter, verse 4, the victory over the world which Jesus had. What does it mean to have victory over the world? The whole world system, uh, though it may be appealing, though we may be tempted, we can overcome. How can we do that? It's by the power of the Spirit. We can say no to things. I can, I can actually, in the power of the Spirit, say no to pornography on the Internet. It's a great plague in the church, tragically, amongst so many men. I mean, I was reading statistics not too long ago. It's just overwhelming how many men, Christian men, uh, professing Christian men, are involved in pornography on the Internet. It's just devastating. But John says that, that we can have this victory, the same victory that Jesus had over the world. In fact, in, in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. And the Spirit enables us to do that. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he talks about, again, this idea of joyous fellowship as a mark of new life which the Spirit initiates in us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy, or the alternate translation, your joy, complete. We're meant to have joy in fellowship. Joy in the context of fellowship with Father, Son, the Spirit, and with each other. In chapter 5, verse 14, again, notice this. The experience of answered prayer. 
He says, this is the assurance we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. That's assurance. You can have assurance in your prayer life. You pray according to his will. God, I want your will. I want your will in this situation. Now, if you're confused about what his will is in a given situation, you say, Lord, open my eyes to your will in this situation. In my humanness, this is what I want to see happen. Most of the time, I'm wrong. Have you ever noticed that? But if you say, Lord, I want your will, I want your will, because I know your will is the very best, and so I'm going to, I'm going to plant myself here. I want you to show me your will by your spirit. I believe you'll show that to me. So I can pray according to your will, and I can have assurance that what I pray I have, because it's by your spirit. Most of all, in chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, the love for God and for our brothers and sisters, which the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts. We don't crank this up ourselves. We do not possess this quality of love independently of Him. Let me just read these verses to you. Verses 18 through 21 of chapter 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Are we going to be punished? No. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. If anyone who, for anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So again, we see that this is the work of the Spirit in our life, to love God and to love one another. Because we know how hard it is to love one another in our own strength, right? I can say all day long, I love God, but I hate you. (laughs) And the love of God's not in me. Inner confidence. Here's a a fourth assurance. John tells us of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit with our spirits, assuring us that God's testimony to His Son is reliable. Assuring us that the Christian experience is real. Sometimes I step back and I think, now, is this all real? I mean, if I've been taken in, is this... And, and then I, I go through this process of thinking through everything, everything that I know, everything I've learned, everything I understand, and I come out and I think, yes, real. <laughs> this is true. It's right. This is the only way. Now, it's just not based on my own human logic. The Spirit leads me through that process, and the Spirit reassures me again and again and again. I will not allow myself to get mired down in doubt and despair. We are meant to believe. Not only to believe in Jesus, but we're also meant to know that we have eternal life. It means for us to know that. And it, that's the task of the Holy Spirit. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, if you will, to bring that quiet confidence home to us in the deepest part of our being. I have eternal life. I, 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 I'm not afraid of death. I don't like the idea of dying. 
But I'm not afraid of death. It's almost exciting when you think about it. Crossing over the bar. Going from, boom, this realm to the next. And you go, whoa, I'm here. Whoa. It's kind of like a little kid can hardly wait to go to Disneyland. Are we there yet? When are we going? It's coming. And here's a fifth assurance, ground of assurance. This is important. Assurance is not being presumptuous. This is a subtle thing. See, again, we need to know we belong. Is that a fair statement? We need to know we belong. You can't, any, any of us understand this principle. You, you can't build uh, any kind of, of a building of any serious dimensions on a flimsy, weak, rickety foundation. Isn't that true? I mean, you've got to have a strong, strong foundation. You're going to build a big building, a serious structure. You need a strong, deep, broad foundation. And so, it is not possible to live the Christian life on the shifting sand of doubt as to our relationship with our Lord. You've got to have a strong foundation. You have to have assurance. If you're full of doubt, if you're tossed about on the waves of doubt, you'll never, ever grow and mature as a Christian. This is why assurance is so important. This is why it's the critical first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes to take up residence in us. It is not modest, as some people think. It's not modest to say, I hope I'm a Christian. Let me see, but, well, I, I hope I'm a Christian. Now, that would be proper to say if uh, being a Christian were the result of what? Our own efforts, our own abilities, our own goodness, our own achievements. But the New Testament clearly says no to that, doesn't it? I'm saved by God's gracious intervention on my behalf. When I was his enemy, when I could care less, when I wasn't looking for him, when I didn't want him, when I was on my happy way, miserable as I was, but unaware, God sovereignly intervened in my life. I thank him for what he's done. I thank him. God, thank you that you intervened in my life sovereignly. I am saved by his gracious intervention, not by any work on my part, not by any effort on my part. I have nothing to boast about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says this, It's all of God. It's all of God. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him. He goes on, he says, and God makes Christ to be our wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption. He is everything. I have nothing to contribute except empty hands of faith, brokenness. He's my everything. He makes me wise. He makes me righteous. He gives me redemption. He redeems my life. He makes me holy. So he says in verse 31 of that passage, So let him who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's why we praise him. That's why we exalt him. Because of all who, all that he is and all that he does on our behalf for us. And he does us by his what? His spirit. 
It is not therefore presumptuous to say with quiet confidence, I know that I belong to Christ. I know that I belong to Christ. I have not done anything to earn this, but God has given me His Spirit. And by His Spirit, He has accepted me into His family. And He means for me to know that I belong. He means for me to know that I belong. And I know it. Aren't you excited? That's the first thing the Holy Spirit does. He assures us. Second thing we're going to deal with next week. Amen? How many are assured? All right. Father, thank you for the assurance you give us. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do, all that you have done, all that you continue to do. Thank you that you have not left us alone. Jesus, thank you for making all this possible by going to the cross on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in us, strengthen us, fill us, that our lives bring you glory. We love you today. Keep your heads bowed for just another moment. There's some, maybe somebody here this morning that you're unsure of your status with God. You've heard some things this morning that maybe have um, resonated with you and You want to know. You want to leave here today knowing that you are in God's family. Maybe you're accustomed to looking at your own life and your own qualifications, and maybe you've lived your life on the basis of just trying to earn it, trying to be good enough. You can't. It's that simple. It's a function of God's Spirit working in you. He's, He's brought you here this morning. You're not here by accident. It's not just a coincidence. He's brought you here this morning. He wants you to hear some things. He wants you to experience some things. His Spirit is at work in your life to convict you of sin, to grant you the gift of repentance, and also the gift of faith that you might believe. There's others, maybe this morning, who you're here today and you have been kind of going through the motions. That your faith is kind of flat. And I, I just want to offer you an opportunity this morning, whoever may, may be needing this, just to either make a commitment or maybe reaffirm a commitment to Jesus. If you don't know him this morning, you can. It's imperative that you acknowledge how you've sinned against him. Even one sin. Even one lie, if you ever lied just one time in your whole life, that's enough to keep you out of heaven. I know it's, it's hard to believe, but that's the truth. And we've broken all of his commandments. But he promises forgiveness because Jesus died on that cross. Because God is holy and he's just and he's righteous, he must punish sin. Now, is he going to punish it either in us forever or he's going to punish it In Jesus on the cross. The choice is ours now. He's bringing you to the brink of that choice. Let me see. Am I going to trust Jesus died for me? Or am I going to to spend all eternity paying the price? Jesus paid for me? Or am I going to pay it? I don't know that there's somebody here this morning that you need to make that decision. You can only make it because God's brought you to the brink of making it. He's given you the faith. 
you can step over that decision line this morning. And as I said, there may be others who your faith is flat, you're, maybe you are living in unforgiveness, in bitterness, in sin of some sort. Opportunity this morning to recommit yourself to Christ and repent. While everybody's heads are bowed, you need to confess these things. Jesus said you must confess them before men. You can do that just with me right now this morning by just lifting your hand and say, you know, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus or I'm ready to reaffirm my commitment to him and get serious once again. Anybody at all, just lift your hand right now. Just let us know. God bless you. Okay, I see your hand. Anybody else? Way back there. Good, I see your hand. Right down here. I see your hand on the aisle. Okay. Anybody else? Spirit, if the Spirit is, is, is prompting you, surrender. Just say, okay, you're right. Don't, don't kick against the goads any longer. Anybody else? We'll just take another second or two. Okay, I see your hand. God bless you. Okay, if you lifted your hand, I'm just going to ask you simply, I see your hand right there in the aisle. Okay, good. If you lifted your hand, I'm just going to ask you real simply right now, just confess your sins to him. He already knows, but you need to confess them. We have assurance. Again, assurance. When we confess our sins, the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just confess those sins to him right now. Take advantage of the gift of repentance that he's granting you. Repentance means you simply make a decision to turn away and turn towards God more fully. And just simply say, God, I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in him. I reaffirm my faith in him if that's the case. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. And lastly, tell God thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your mercy to me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for restoring me. And thank you for restoring the joy of of your salvation in my life. Amen, church? Amen, amen. Turn to your neighbor and and encourage them. Just uh, whisper a word of encouragement to them, a, a blessing, if you will, and share with them one thing that you learned this morning.